Blog Talk Radio. Yeah. Mic check, mic check. One, two, one, two, one, two, for you. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm that biblical, biblical theology, theology study, the person of God, attributes. God's word is like a breeze in the tropics, and Jesus got the keys to the cockpit. He's the king, the priest, and the prophet, so please watch as we proceed with the topic. Uh, yeah. And that's biblical theology, that phrase alone that gives some people allergies. Uh, they say it's not practical enough, uh-huh. just give me Jesus, that will be enough. Uh, that seems plausible and logical. Nobody wants to be all cold and theological. But being a theologian is not optional. Because when you talk about Christ, you're saying something doctrinal. Either it accurately portrays his majesty, or it's a travesty, or worse, blasphemy. You can do a global search. This mark is crucial to the health of a local church. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. What do I mean by biblical theology? The whole theme of the scripture and God's the key. It's following the Bible storyline and the ultimate goal is seeing God's glory shine. What he starts, he finishes with dedication. A work of art from Genesis to Revelation. From God's creation to man's fall to redemption to consummation. His designs and structure each time will fluster. What mind can instruct the divine conductor? His worthiness sits enthroned in the heavens sturdy and fixed. Romans 11.36 Biblical theology encompasses Who God is, what he promises, and accomplishes So clever we behold his endeavors unfold The greatest story ever told The Christian life is a difficult odyssey The faithful are a statistical anomaly The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically That's why we need that biblical theology Lord God, deliver us from apostasy The human heart is given to idolatry The situation is critical, we got See the importance of biblical theology. The Lord has not decided to keep us guessing. He gave us the word providing us correction and the spirit for guidance and direction. Biblical theology is like protection from ourselves and our improper reflection so we can follow the Bible, not just our reflections. Otherwise, we will chop it into sections and not make the connections like the doctrine of election. And Satan is waiting to slice us in the mincemeat if our faith is a mile wide and an inch deep. Theology is like the root of a tree, which determines how rich the fruit's gonna be. And by God's grace, he'll breathe on us with his breath, lead us in his steps, show us his eagerness to bless. And we'll experience true peace within our death, because we'll know the meaning of Jesus and his death. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. Alright, welcome to another edition of Theology Matters. I'm your host, Devin Falloon, and my beautiful bride is actually uh, out with the baby getting some dinner, so she's not with us tonight, uh, but 
Uh, looks to be a promising show. Uh, we had done a show a while back uh, with Eric Chabot, I think that's how you pronounce it, um, on uh, how to answer Jewish objections. And uh, that show actually got a lot of downloads, and uh, a lot of people are, are interested in exactly how to an- uh, evangelize to, uh, to Jewish people. So we are going to have Eric Chabot back on again today, and uh, we are going to go round two with how to answer uh, many Jewish objections to the Bible. And, uh, you know, I'll say up front that um, that uh, a lot of the objections that come, you know, to the doctrine of, tr- of the Trinity, the deity of Christ, um, uh, the reliability of the Bible, uh, as far as the New Testament goes, because uh, Jews, of course, don't accept the New Testament. Um, a lot of that stuff can be uh, can also be used um, against the Jehovah's Witnesses, against the Mormons, against Islam. So it's going to be a very informative show uh, because the the information, like I say, um, you know, defending the doctrine of the Trinity uh, is going to be pretty much the same uh, whether who you're talking to, whether it's Mormons, Muslims, whatever. So hope you guys tune in for that. Stay with us as we will have him on. Uh, a couple of announcements real quick. Uh, those who have not liked our Facebook page yet, I would really encourage you guys to do that. Uh, if you go to facebook.com slash theology matters with the Palouse, it's facebook.com slash theology matters with the Palouse, uh, like our page. We have a bunch of old shows on there that we've done, our podcast. Um, we've had uh, shows with Paul Copan where he came on and uh, – we basically grilled them for about an hour and a half uh, on on how to how to answer uh, objections from atheists, and actually had a had an atheist call in and had a really good conversation for almost 20 minutes. Um, we've done several debates. Uh, we've done a, a debate with uh, Matt Dillahunty, president of the Atheist Experience. We had him on and uh, did a whole discussion with him and John Ferrer. Uh, we've done a debate. Uh, with a Mormon and a Christian on the view of God, the differences. And uh, so we've got a lot of good information, a lot of good shows. We try to bring, uh, you know, some of the top thinkers uh, to you guys. And uh, a lot of good information there. It's free. We don't charge anything. You know, we don't get paid for anything. We just, uh, it's it's a labor of, uh, of love because we want to see uh, the truth get out. Uh, real quickly, uh, also, uh, June 27th, uh, we are going to be doing another debate on the show. Uh, we are going to have my friend Nathan Taylor on. Uh, if you guys remember him, he's been on a couple times before. He uh, represented the Protestant view when we did the Sola Scriptura debate, and uh, he debated uh, the Catholic uh, Devin Rose. And again, that debate, of course, is, is available for, for anybody who wants to hear it. And that was a that was a really good debate. Uh, he come on another show that we did looking at Roman Catholicism. But uh, June 27th, he's going to be on here defending uh, the Reformed uh, Calvinist view uh, regarding soteriology or salvation uh, against the classical Arminian view. And the guy that is going to represent the classical Arminian view is Jordan Fischel. And uh, he's a he's a sharp sharp guy. Uh, I think he's going to be combining the Arminian slash Molinist view 
and uh, Molinism is a pretty pretty popular view nowadays. And so, um, and Jordan is a is an able debater. He uh, he actually debated this issue publicly uh, in a tag team debate with a couple other guys. So uh, he definitely uh, he knows the topic, and uh, I think it will be a good show. I think it'll be a lot of a lot of good information. So we're looking forward to that. And then in July, it's still tentative, but uh, I've been in touch with Matt Dillahunty again. Uh, from the from the atheist experience, and uh, he said he would be willing to come back on and do another show. So I got some Christian apologists uh, lined up for that, and we'll be looking at some of the traditional arguments for the existence of God, and uh, have a good time with that. So uh, I feel like I'm going a million miles a minute here. So with that being said, I wanted to bring on my buddy uh, Daryl Zamora. And uh, he's a good friend of mine. He came on the show before. He's uh, given his testimony. And we're looking at probably uh, very soon, maybe sooner than he thinks, I wanted to show uh, again on the Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, We've done one in the past, um, and it was a good show. But I think it's important that we continue to to bring this up. the issue up because Jehovah's Witnesses are all over America, specifically where we live. And a lot of Christians just simply don't know how to to answer the objections and how to answer uh, the many claims that they make. And uh, in fact, it was Dr. Walter Martin, who was kind of the father of the modern cult movement, who said that the uh, Jehovah's Witnesses could uh, take the average uh, Christian and twist him into a theological pretzel in about 30 seconds. And uh, and I think this is this is true. So we are going to do a, another show in depth looking at uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses and primarily how to answer the objections. So we wanted to, uh, we've got about uh, 15 minutes or so before Eric calls in, so we wanted just to kind of give a little primer and you guys kind of with your appetite for what we, we have coming. So Daryl, are you there, my friend? Yeah, can you hear me? I can hear you. Can can you hear me okay? Awesome. Yep, perfectly. Good deal. Good deal. So we've been wanting to do a show yep. on uh on dealing with the Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh let me ask you, what uh what makes you want to do a show? What's what's some of the reasoning you would want to tackle this uh particular issue? Well, to kind of piggyback on what you said earlier, you know, they're everywhere. <laughs> Um, they're passing out literature. You know, you run into them at gas stations. They're they're faithful to what they're called to do within their within their religion. Um, and so the average Christian, like you said, is unaware of the issues in a sense. Um, so if they run into Jehovah's Witness, they're in trouble if they're not able to back up the Trinity, which is the topic tonight, with Scripture. Because what Jehovah's Witnesses do is they go to Scriptures to kind of debunk the view of the Trinity. So you have a Christian who maybe is not so knowledgeable with Scripture questioning the Trinity because they've made it appear as if it were a false false doctrine. And so Christians need to be able to defend this doctrine with confidence, and they need to know the Scriptures to go to, not to just prove the Jehovah's Witness wrong, but hopefully God can use that conversation to open their eyes to, to the truth of you know, the deity of Christ and the Trinity and 
And so it's not necessarily just for a defense. It is. It's really good for that. But also, you know, it can help the Jehovah's Witness and God using that conversation to give them the true gospel. And so it's very, very important to... And the Trinity is the dividing line between us and us and Jehovah's Witnesses because that's the first thing they go they attack. And if you can't defend that, then you have no grounds to to witness to them because you know that's the dividing line. Let me ask you this: I was in a conversation recently with a Christian who said uh, regarding the Jehovah's Witnesses. He says, you know, I don't even get into these exegetical debates. I don't even go to the Bible. I don't even get into these debates. I just tell them my testimony, and I say, hey, this is the kind of life I've lived, and uh, I was I was a drunk, I was a bum, I was a womanizer, uh, and then I came to Christ. Christ saved me. He opened my eyes. He cleansed me of this stuff. So he says, you know, it's not even necessarily having to go to the Bible, but just kind of give them your testimony. What What is your response to that? Well, obviously our testimony is, you know, is very important to us personally. Kind of lets people know how we came to Christ. You know, it can paint. It can, um, in a sense, be a good story or a testimony to show the truthfulness and the power of Christ when he when he does regenerate you. However, experience doesn't determine truth because the Jehovah's Witness can on the flip side say, "Well, I've had an experience, and this is why I'm a Jehovah's Witness," or any other religion for that matter. So experience doesn't determine truth. Um, and so testimonies can be good to an extent, but scripture, it needs to be backed by scripture, and scripture is what we live by to, to show the truth claims of Christ. And other reasons, of course, apologetics and all that. Yeah, that's right. And, uh, you know, people, we're not, you know, we're, we're, you hear this phrase oftentimes, you know, preach the gospel if necessary, use words. It's just, it's just ridiculous. I mean, you know, right. you have to use words. The Bible is, or the the gospel is propositional truth that we have to believe. And so, right. you know, you can't get away from using words. You have to use words. And, uh, you know, where I came from in Utah, it's, you know, it's Mormon Central and a lot of good people there, you know, right. speaking in, in human terms. Um but they're lost, and they, and they need the true gospel. So, uh, I agree. We're when we're we're talking with them, we need to actually look at some of the arguments. So, let's do this. Um, you know, when I talk with two of his witnesses, the, a lot of times when they come to the door. In fact, I just had a lady message me and ask me, is, "Is this kind of their their mode of operandi? Is when they come, they start talking about the end times and the world coming to an end, and and they do." They absolutely right. do. But I'll be honest, I don't personally get into that that kind of stuff. I don't get into whether or not we celebrate birthdays. I don't get into the American flag. I don't get into blood transfusion. Right. You know, uh, those are just issues that are secondary. Right. Right? So I don't get tied up in that kind of stuff. We need to go right for the straight of the heart. Uh, exactly. you, said, uh, you said the dividing line was the Trinity. Why is that? Um, well, usually, yeah, the Trinity is, is discussed. However, the first aspect of the Trinity, from my from my understanding from talking to, you know, a dozen of Jehovah's Witnesses, is the deity of Christ. Um, so it seems like if that falls into place, if that can be shown through Scripture that Christ is 
God in flesh, or he has a de- he is deity, then the Holy Spirit, you know, almost by default fall into play because um, maybe it may, correct me if I'm wrong. It just seems like that would be by default be the truth because if Christ is proven to be God, well, the Holy Spirit also claims deity as well. So, but it, it is Christ who they go to first. Um, we obviously believe the Holy Spirit is God too, but from just from my understanding from from discussions with him, they try to debunk the idea that Jesus is God. Right, and that is the dividing line. And uh, so I guess the question would be, um, what is the Jehovah's Witness view of Jesus? What do they believe, uh, what, who do they believe Jesus is? Um, well, they do believe, according to Colossians 1, that he's the firstborn of all creation, that he was the first created being, and through him, Jehovah created everything else. So not necessarily that Christ created it, but that Jehovah used him to create the universe and, you know, time, space, and matter. Um, now, I, I would need your opinion on this, because I'm not quite sure. I've heard different views. But is it correct that they believe he was formerly the Archangel Michael, according to maybe Daniel, I think it's Daniel 10? Yes, huh? Yep, they do believe Jesus okay. was uh, Michael the Archangel, yeah. Right. And so, so they do believe he was, was created and a, and a creature, and uh, he was created by God. Contrast that for us with the, with the biblical view of Jesus. What does the Bible say well, about who Jesus is? Right. Um, well, if I can just use the same verse in Colossians 1, where it says he's the firstborn of all creation, well, it's not necessarily that he was the firstborn in the sense that Christ, our God created him first and then he created. But it's an equivocation on words, and so firstborn just means preeminent one. And so obviously it means a few other things as well. But uh, it shows us in Colossians 1 that Christ did create everything because you see in Genesis 1 where it says God created the heavens and the earth. Parallel that with Colossians 1, Christ is creating. Also, Isaiah 44:24, God is saying, you know, I made creation all by myself with my own hands. Kind of paraphrase, obviously, but... And then it's the same parallel with Colossians 1. And so you have God creating. Um, Jesus, however, does make explicit claims to deity. In a verse, I talked to somebody on Sunday about this. They were saying, hey, the Jehovah's Witness I talked to you not too long ago Reads that Jesus is the Son of God, and they believe particular claims, but then they hold back when they say, "Oh, I believe He's God, the you know forever eternal God." And He was asking me why do they believe all that, but they still can't be saved. And the reason why I told him, I said, "If you go to John eight twenty four, Jesus says, unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sin." And the I am can parallel to Exodus three fourteen, when God is saying to Moses, "Tell." Um, well, Moses is asking God, who do I tell the Israelites you are? And he says, tell them I am sent you. And so the I am, the Tetragrammatam, is, is Yahweh, and it's referring to his essential nature. Not necessarily his personhood, but his eternal nature. And so Christ is saying, unless you believe that I am, then you're going to die in your sin. And so he's making an explicit claim to deity, and the Jews in that day would have known. And he does again so in John 8, 5, 8. When he says before Abraham was, I am. So he is claiming undoubtedly that he is God. Very true. Very good. Uh, take us to John 1. Take us to, to John chapter 1. And and uh, also, how does that play a part in demonstrating Christ's deity? All right. Well, John 1 is a famous, the Logos. Um, 
says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And so, verse 3 says, all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made. And so, John is calling Jesus the Logos, the, the eternal being, and he created everything. And so, this isn't a, it's not straight from the words of Christ, but obviously the Bible is inspired by God. So, it's an, also another explicit claim to his eternal nature. Right. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And, of course, John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Yep. So there's a lot of good scriptures. But the the thing is, is, is um, Jehovah's Witnesses also respond to some of these. Uh, let's, uh, let's look at some of this. Uh, for okay. example, John 14.28, um, Jehovah's Witness always ask these type of questions. Uh, if Jesus is God, and let's let's read what John fourteen twenty eight says says uh, you and this is Jesus uh, speaking, he says, You heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. And now the Jehovah's Witness is going to say, Listen, if Jesus is God and uh, he has equality with the Father, then why in the world is Jesus saying that the Father is greater than I? And this this trips a lot of Christians up. How do you respond to that? Um, Well, Jesus, in his deity, his incarnation, he added human nature. So, like, in other verses as well, where Jesus doesn't know the coming of his, or the, yeah, the timing of his second coming, shows, in his, it appears that Christ is not omniscient, because obviously he would know. But he's speaking in his human nature on the example I just gave, because he's not all-knowing in his human nature. But this and this seems to appear that positionally Christ, or God the Father, in a sense, is greater than Christ. Um, there's also there's different roles within the Trinity. But in this sense, Christ is on earth as a man. God the Father is in heaven. Um, Christ, I mean, let, me, let me rephrase that. The human nature of Christ is on earth. His deity is obviously eternal, omniscient, and all that. But positionally, the Father is greater than he is because of the position Christ is currently in when he's saying that. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. I want to make sure I'm not... Speaking in here, you know this stuff, buddy. You don't have to keep asking me. You know, you know this stuff. You're the expert. Uh, John ten thirty too, as well. Jesus says what? He says, "I and the Father are one." If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And then John chapter five, uh, they're getting ready to stone Jesus, and Jesus says, "You know, you you know why you stone me?" And they say, "Because you, uh, being a man." you know, saying you call yourself the Son of God, making yourself equal with God. And, right. of course, they want to uh, stone him at that point for that. Right. So that's, yeah, that's that's uh, one of the scriptures that they go to. Let's uh, let's look at Luke 8, 18, 19. We're giving you a workout tonight. All right. Uh, this is, I think this is dealing with, uh, I want to say the rich young ruler. Uh, he says, uh, and Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? Because uh, he came up to me and said, good teacher, good master. Uh, why do you, Jesus responds, why do you call me good? No one is good except God. Right. 
Then, so how does how does the Christian respond to that? Because it seems you know what the Jehovah's Witnesses want to say is, well, see, therefore he's <laughs> he's saying he's not right. God. He's saying, you know, why are you calling me good? Only God is good. Right. The um, this is actually a claim to deity because what he's doing when he's talking to the rich young ruler is trying to get him to understand the implications of what he's calling Jesus. He's pretty much asking him rhetorically. So are you calling me God because you call me good because I'm like, God is good? So, although this looks like of, you know, something that Jehovah's Witnesses could use against the Trinity, well, it's actually a verse for the Trinity or Jesus, the deity of Christ, because he's he just wanted the rich young ruler to understand the you know the implications of what he's saying, what he's saying to him, and he's calling him God. He's he's equaling, he's um, putting him on equal grounds with the Father or God. So Christ just wants to make sure he understands what he's saying before he continues with what he's saying. Yep, that's that's absolutely absolutely right. Talk to us a little bit maybe about the New World Translation because a lot of people don't know because uh, when they they get into conversations with the Jehovah's Witnesses and they bring out their little Bible <laughs> and you right. see uh, suddenly you see things that uh, you you don't see in yours. Right. Um, the New World Translation, I've, I haven't studied it particularly myself other than here and there. So, however, just when they go to particular verses like John 1.1, 1, 1, um, they will manipulate the verse or actually add v- words to it. Like, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. Well, they say, uh, was a God. And so they they make it appear as if Jesus was a God, but not the eternal God. And also Colossians, when it says, Christ created all things, add things like Christ created all other things, making himself appear to be a part of creation. And so there's um if you if you study their their Bible, there is a complete bias against showing the true Christ and what the what our translation would say about him. And if you parallel verses from the Old Testament to the New Testament and in instances where it should show Christ's deity, they somehow circumvent that to make Christ look like a creature. And so um, if you just look at little things like that, it's just a complete bias. And for, uh, for example, I can't probably locate the exact verse, but just the concept is when the New Testament talks about um, Christ as being parallel with Jehovah and it should be translated that way, well, they just they sabotage and they manipulate it to relinquish that title from Christ by saying by using something else. Um I learned that in one of my classes at Southern Evangelical Seminary. And so I would definitely like to get more knowledgeable with their translation to kind of go to their source and just show out and show the inconsistencies. But, you know, scripture, scripture is scripture no matter what, and you can still use any Bible in our translation to debunk what they're saying in their translation just by, um, just by what the verse says, just by exegetical reading. We've got about uh, three minutes here left. Before I'm going to bring Eric on. I wanted to play okay. this clip from Walter Martin uh, discussing uh, the Trinity, which is, is okay. just, as we said earlier, one of the dividing lines. Every one of these folks that we've talked about disagrees on one specific thing, among others, and that is the Trinity. Yes. They do not want to hold to the concept of the Trinity. Let me start off with the Jehovah's Witness and read from the, uh, the Watchtower Society's own booklet. They say that such doctrine is not of God. They say that it's of Satan. Uh, Satan is the originator of the Trinity doctrine. 
uh, sincere persons who want to know the true God and serve him find it a bit difficult to love and worship a complicated, freakish-looking, three-headed God, etc., all the way down. Now, others would say the same thing. Let's talk about what is the proof that, how would you handle these folks? What is the proof scripturally that there is a triune God? When you're talking to a Jehovah's Witness, or for that matter, a cultist about the Trinity, the simplest thing to do is to say, look, the nature of God is beyond our understanding. Everybody knows that. I've said it many times, it's true. Uh, if you could understand how God was God, you'd be God. He doesn't ask us to do that. He simply says, this is my word, and in there I have revealed myself. So in the word of God, you have the Father declared to be God. In Second Peter chapter 1, God the Father. You have the Son declared to be God. In John chapter 1, verse 1. You have the Holy Spirit declared to be God. Acts chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. Then the Bible says, and these three persons are the one God. Why? Because there's only one God, so you don't have to be a great logician to figure out that if the Father is called God, the Son is called God, the Spirit is called God, and there's only one God, then the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are the one God, whether you understand it or not. And that's where they break down. They will not take the leap of faith that if God says it, that's sufficient. All right, man. We're going to leave it there, but uh, right. we, uh, we're lo looking forward to having you back on real soon, and uh, we'll do a whole hour and a half show. Uh, All right. We'll see if I can handle it. Uh, <laughs> you'll do great, man. You'll do great. Thanks for coming on, buddy. Hi, right, thanks, Dan. Have a great night. All right. You too. All right, that's my good friend Daryl. Uh, what we're going to do, I'm going to take a two-minute break, and we're going to come back, and uh, we will have Eric Chabot on, and we're going to look at how to answer these Jewish objections uh, that often come up. We're going to look at things like the deity of Christ, uh, the doctrine of the Trinity. Again, some of this stuff is going to you know, overlap with the Jehovah's Witnesses and the other uh, cults and world religions that deny the Trinity. So stay with us, and we will be right but God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. The word justified means that you and I stand before God acceptable, spotless, pure and without sin. That God looks at us and says, there is no sin in that man. There is no sin in that woman. That he looks at us and we are now just in his sight. So all the blasphemy that we've done by choosing stuff over God, all the blasphemy that we've lived in by saying my way is better than God's, all the blatant sin of saying creation is better than God's is removed and God sees us as just. Much more than having now been justified by His blood. This is great news. Nothing about your effort in that test at all. Nothing about your might, your religious stamina, your morality, your cleaning yourself up. You have been justified by an act of God. Bottom line. You have not earned right standing in front of God by your effort or your cleaning up of your life. We have been made pure, standing blameless in front of God, 
not because of any kind of religious or moral pursuit, but because Christ died. And in His death, He absorbed all of God's wrath for you and I. And that's why the Bible says that for the children of God, we are not appointed to suffer wrath. Because the wrath bestowed upon you and I was absorbed by Christ's death. Welcome back to Theology Matters. I love that clip. Justification is another watershed issue, and uh, that's the most important question everyone has to answer, is how does sinful, wicked, wretched man, how are we justified before a holy God uh, who uh, we're at war with? We fell in Adam, and then we have our our sins that we do actually, and... uh, Justification is the watershed issue. So that's one of the reasons we do this show is we want to get the gospel out. We want to be able to share the gospel to uh, numerous people, both Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, atheists. Uh, tonight we're focusing on on how to answer some of the Jewish objections. Tonight we have uh, Eric Chabot with us. Uh, he's been on before. He's a graduate of Southern Evangelical Seminary. Uh, he's a director of Ratio Christi Chapter at Ohio State University and the co-advisor of Shoresh, a Jewish outreach ministry on the campus of OSU. Eric, are you there? I'm here. How are you doing? Can you hear man? me? Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm fine. How are you? Good to, good to be back. How are you doing? Doing real good, man. Glad to have you back. Congrats on the uh, having the baby, I think, since I last was on. I think that came around after I was on. Am I correct? Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. She was, I uh, can't remember how far along she was, but uh, Ellie had not made her arrival yet. So Ellie. See, my daughter's name's Elise, so you're pretty close oh, there. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, Eliana Grace is her name. We call her oh, Ellie for sure. That's wonderful. Well, I'm sure that you are busy with the blessing, as they say. With the blessing comes joy and also time, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, time and patience. It's definitely a definitely a sanctification process for sure. Right. Well, it's good to be back. Thanks, man. Tell us uh, tell us kind of about what you're doing out there at uh, Ratio Christi. Uh, we had Blake Anderson on before, who's uh, I think the, one of the directors. Uh, with Ratio Christi, but but tell us, what is Ratio Christi, and what are you guys doing out there? Well, we, we're a nationwide college ministry, and we have we have chapters all across the country on various campuses. Um, obviously, the, uh, the focus of Ratio Christi is apologetics. It means reason for Christ. So we started uh, these chapters. They start, started about four years ago. Uh, I, I was like about probably about the fourth chapter here. At high state, the high state university here in Columbus, and really, it's just a ministry that is on the campus that focuses on, you know, answering the some of the tough objections to the faith, trying to equip Christians and what they believe, trying to help engage the people that don't believe in what we believe. You know, the, the, the standard objections you get just to other religions or atheism or whatever it is, um, that's pretty prevalent on the campus. So, we. Uh, we have events. We have speakers come in. We've had Frank Turk here. We've had William Lane Craig. Uh, we've had Paul Nelson. We did a debate with Bart Ehrman and Michael Brown. Uh, we've done a lot of panels with atheists, and we do a lot of evangelism on the campus, a lot of outreach, just talking to students and discipleship. 
So it's kind of a variety of things, but obviously the focus is apologetics. I think Blake's more the uh, Blake's more of the overall uh, guy. He's one of the head guys over everybody else. So look at him as much more special than me. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so well, anyway. I think you guys are all special out there doing that. It's uh, it's a very needed ministry, you know. It's, yes, I can't even tell you how many people I talk to almost on a, on a daily basis who. Uh, you know, who uh, I'm, I'm just I'm thinking here. It was a we did a Bible study Monday night, and uh, one of the kids that came, he's a younger kid, college college age kid. Um, to my knowledge, was not a Christian, and had a lot of issues with uh, science and the Bible, and he, he thought the Bible had a lot of errors. And uh, I didn't really get to know him. I didn't really get to talk to him. But a lot of this stuff came out after uh, after we left. You know, we went home and and they stayed around and talked a little bit. And uh, when I got home, uh, my friend had sent me a, a Facebook message saying, "Hey, you know, can you send me some articles and some stuff uh, for this guy on science in the Bible? He's got a lot of questions. Seems interested." I sent right. him the sent him stuff, and he sent it over to this young man. And, uh, you know, the next day he died. Wow. He was a young man, 23 years old, and uh, I think he had a seizure or something at oh. work and ended up choking to death, and he died. Oh, wow. Well, you know, he, he got the gospel that night when we did the Bible study, and uh, and after I left, uh, I believe there was another uh, gentleman there who was, who was giving him the gospel, and uh, you could see God's sovereign hand at it. Um but you know these people have real objections to the Bible, and uh, you know God uh, uses <coughs> apologetics oftentimes to, to knock down the barriers. Sure well, we really don't have any choice. I mean, like you found out the other night, you can either just say, "Well, just keep reading the Bible, and maybe you'll figure it out," or else you can try to answer his questions the best of your ability and try to do some apologetics. You know, you don't really you don't really have much of an option. You know, you can't really opt out of it. So. Right. That's what you know. It seems like that's what Christians were, were trying to equip people to do. We know we can't with apologetics. We know the, the Holy Spirit has to, you know, be in the process. But I think a lot of times Christians opt out of it because they're like, well, you know, you can't argue anyone into the kingdom. Well, no one's saying you can argue anyone in the kingdom. It's a question of just trying to be faithful to answer their questions and let God work in the midst of it. So that's all you can do. Yeah, you know, I, I remember, um, I remember J.P. Moreland. Yeah, you know, he said, you know, people say you can't argue someone into the kingdom. He said, that's it's false. He said, you can. Good arguments can win people to the kingdom. And I think what he's saying is true in that it's not either, you know, reason and logic or the Holy Spirit. It right. can be God, the Holy Spirit using sound reasons and arguments to, to, you know, to open the eyes, you know, and knock down the barriers. But I think it's like you say, a lot of Christians, they just, they want to opt out. They're they're intellectually lazy, and they don't want to, to put in the time, or maybe they're worried, or or uh, you know they don't have the training. So when they come up to you know the Jehovah's Witness or whatever, they don't know what to say and uh, just kind of retreat. Right. Uh, well, you know the good news is that we do have plenty of apologetic materials out there now. It's, we no one can say there isn't anything out there to get their hands on. It's a question of us just getting people to be motivated to get their hands on it and dig in, you know, and that's why we're, what we're trying to do. And uh, there's progress, but we certainly have a long ways to go. 
um, compared to how much material is out there, you know, and how much could really be done, you know, for the for the kingdom of God, how much we could really, how much more we could do, you know. So Absolutely. we're we're going forward. <laughs> Everybody is. Amen. Uh, That's right. Tell us, tell us, Eric. Why should Christians care about Jewish objections to the faith? Well, I think Jewish objections to the faith are, are similar to anything else. Where, let's face it, we probably run into people across our path that you know they may say, "Well, you know, I used to be a Christian and now I'm a Muslim," or "I used to be a Christian and now I'm an atheist," or "I used to believe in Jesus and believe everything about Orthodox Christianity, but now I'm this, now I'm that," and. The same thing happens with people with Jewish objections. Um, you know, I've I've debated online a lot of Jewish people on chat rooms and Facebook pages and personally in person, you know, and I've just seen a lot of Christians or people that profess to be, say they were raised Christian or they used to be, you know, in Christianity and now they're not because they just, they heard these Jewish objections and it's something they just couldn't answer. And so it's just the same story is like any other religion, like an, you know, be a Muslim leaving the faith or, a, you know, Christian leaving the faith or Islam or atheism. You have to be equipped on Jewish objections just like anything else. And we should have a special interest in it. I mean, after all, the, as you know and I know, if you read the Bible, it's very clear that, you know, that Paul, you know, teaches in Romans 9 through 11 that he uh, he's broken over the Jewish people's rejection of their faith, rejection of the faith of Messiah and there's a call upon the church in Romans 11, 11 to provoke Jewish people to jealousy. So, you know, we've we've got a certainly a you know, an interesting situation with Jews. You know, obviously most of what we believe as Christians comes right out of Judaism, a majority of it. Um, you know, we obviously have some differences, but the birth of our faith, you know, came out of a Jewish culture, a Jewish setting. I mean, there was there were no Lutheran churches, Baptist churches, Methodist, Catholics, you know, Calvinists, Arminians, <laughs> or any of those things. So. You know, we uh, it, it's just the same thing like anything else. We should know some of these um, objections and uh, take interest in them, especially if we have people around us that are leaving, you know, the faith over these things. They can't find answers to them. And I don't say they're necessarily converting to Judaism. Some of them are, but then you find some that just become agnostic about Christianity, you know, because of the Jewish objections. Why is it that uh, you think people who, who say that they're former Christians are, are leaving the faith uh, because of Jewish objections. Well, I think it's just uh, I think it's just the objections they get that they're not hearing. Um, you know, it's not like the churches equip people how to handle these objections, just like any other apologetic objection. If you don't have the background training, and you know, they can stumble you. And you know, when you hear these objections, like uh, the Jewish people make as to why Jesus isn't the Messiah, or why everything we believe in Christianity is really not. Um, has any Jewish connection, they tend, be, tend to obviously begin to doubt, well, you know, maybe there's something wrong here. Now, a lot of times, I'd say Christians have a hard time uh, reconciling the Old and New Testament together. You know, that's a challenge for, I think, a lot of us in general, a lot of Christians. You know, it's hard sometimes to connect the two. It's hard to know what is applicable to today, wondering how the New Testament changes things or doesn't change things. And so I find a lot of Christians have a hard time um, making the connecting points between both of the testaments, uh, that seems to be an issue. Now, online, on the Internet, uh, there are Jewish apologetic websites, just like Muslim have their apologists, and we have our apologists, and atheists have apologists. Well, Jews have apologists, and they have groups like Jews for Judaism and Outreach Judaism. They're online that 
a lot of people, as you know, the Internet can turn you into a skeptic in about 20 minutes if you don't know what you believe. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and I think, honestly, I think a lot of people are surfing these sites, and they're, they really get, they get sent these links by Jewish people to read up on the prophecies or whatever the objection is. And then they may go to their pastor or may go to a friend who's a strong Christian or been in the faith for a while and say, hey, have you heard these Jewish objections? Well, Many Christians don't take the time, obviously, to think about Jewish objections. I mean, some do, but overall there's a lot of Christians who have it, right? Just like maybe we haven't studied up on Islam or whatever it is. So, you know, then they just can't seem to uh, get the answers, and maybe it just creates a, you know, a web of doubt in their mind, and then they just begin to say, well, maybe this thing is – maybe the Jew, you know, maybe the Christians do have it wrong. Maybe Jesus really isn't the Messiah. Maybe the Jews are right. Maybe – Maybe it's true. Maybe the Messiah hasn't come. And so it's really the same pattern as anything else, you know, whether it be an atheism issue or an Islam issue. You know, you start hearing some objections. You either got to really dig deep and find answers or else you just um, you get lazy uh, or else you just maybe, um, you know, are looking for reasons to leave the faith. But, you know, there's a combination of issues of people, as you know, and people with Jewish arguments are no different, you know. But I do think Jews – have compiled quite a few arguments. You know, they they definitely have a lot of arguments. They try to compile against what we believe. And you, and you, you know, Michael Brown, uh, yeah. you know, the Messianic Jewish apologist. Look, he's written a five volume set. I mean, that's five volumes answering Jewish objections to Jesus. Now, that's a lot of writing, a lot of ink, right? <laughs> so it yeah. just goes to show you that you know there's a lot of objections. And I share those books with people. I've sold them in churches, you know, and. Christians come up to me, they're like, what? How can they have so many objections? Like, what possible objections could they have? And, you know, they're just shocked. I mean, they just, they've never even thought of it or heard of it. And, and uh, you know, it's quite enlightening for them, but yet also quite um, startling. So um, I personally think it's just a, uh, you know, something that uh, all Christians should hopefully show some interest in, given the commandment is still to the Jew, you know, and Paul says it's the gospel to the Jew, first in Romans one sixteen. that's, in the Greek, that's still in the present tense. So, you know, Paul does have a calling. He, Paul's saying, you know, the church, you know, should be taking the gospel to Jewish people and Gentiles, obviously, non-Jews. But we certainly want to have some focus on, um, you know, trying to reach out to Jewish people with the good news of uh, of their Messiah and our Messiah. <clears throat> Excuse yeah, me. Let me uh, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I'm done. Job. Go ahead. Nope, I'm done. So I, I was, was going to ask you, in America, how, how many people practice Judaism? I mean, is it, well, is it a big number? Or? Yeah, I don't, I don't know the exact stats in America. When you say practicing, um, you do have, I mean, a large Jewish population in America, but you have three branches of Judaism that are most dominant. You have Orthodox Judaism, you have Conservative Judaism, and you have Reformed Judaism. Now, obviously, the Orthodox just like or probably we have a lot more in common with Orthodox Jews because they are practicing and they do tend to know what they believe and they're pretty dogmatic and they you know have some very strong convictions. I would say when I run into people that are Reformed Jews, they're kind of the more, most liberal branch of Judaism. They don't really have any strong convictions about God or Messiah. I mean, they can basically be an atheist. You can be an atheist and just practice cultural Judaism if you wanted to. So those kinds of people are tricky because – you know, they just generally don't have a lot of strong convictions. But groups like Orthodox, groups like Jews for Judaism on the, online, I told you about these online websites, those are all Orthodox Jews. And they're okay. very, very adamant about protecting Judaism and also getting their people educated about handling, 
handling the missionary, they call them missionaries or Christian apologists, whatever, you know, they say, you know, we've got to equip our people with answers to these things. So, um, so, you know, people, as far as practicing, I think there's a lot of Jews that aren't practicing, but I think there are some, the ones that are, like I said, it can be more of a cultural Judaism, um, and not so much maybe like a religious Judaism where they're actually in synagogue every Saturday and they're, you know, living the religious lifestyle per se. So it really varies from person to person. Um, but the outreach groups, like I said, on online are very aggressive. I mean, they're very aggressive in what they do um, as far as like trying to equip their people, getting answers to them. I mean, I- I've been sent so many links <laughs> over the years from um, – yeah, these groups, you know, like I'll be talking to a Jewish person, they'll send me a website, you know, go read this on Jews for Judaism, this is what they say, you know, so they've got their own apologetic materials out there. Yeah, for people who uh, have a question and want to call in, we'd uh, love, to, love to hear from you. Um, 760-542-3907, 760-542-3907. If you got a question for Eric, Give us a call or comment, uh, or maybe you're Jewish and have some objections, and uh, we'd love to hear from you. So go ahead and call on in. So, Eric, what's some of the right and uh, some of the wrong approaches maybe we can take when we're studying some of these messianic prophecies? Well, I tell you, when I was a new Christian, I, I became a Christian in my mid-20s. I started to get a lot of objections to the faith. It was kind of like I went out. I want to tell everyone about the gospel. I was like, this is really exciting. If it's true, you know, I I was excited. So I had this fresh zeal, but then when I started getting all these objections, I realized, you know what, I'm going to have to get some answers what I believe. Well, I wandered off to a Christian bookstore in town, and I went into the apologetics section. Now, I'd even, keep in mind, I didn't even know what apologetics was at that point, but sure enough, they had the um, standard apologetic books for sale, a lot of the Josh McDowell stuff and some of the other ones, and I bought them and started reading them. Well, I, I, I kind of read, read up on Messianic prophecy, and I was I was thinking, like, well, this is really convincing. There's, like, probably, like, 330 prophecies, as they say in these books, or 340. Well, as I kind of went on over the years, I studied this more in depth, I realized that um, that approach can be kind of tricky because when you say there's 330 prophecies, you almost have to now really break it down by what you even mean by prophecy, right? You have to define it, and you have to really be clear – because um, that can be a problem if you just start saying there's 330 prophecies. Most Christians, when they think of Messianic prophecy, they think of what's called direct prophecy. They think there's something in the Old Testament that speaks directly about Jesus, and Jesus fulfills in the New Testament, right? That's the way most people view Messianic prophecy. Well, that's true. There is there are some direct there is some direct prophecy, but we have to also understand that when you think of the word fulfillment, like when we talk about how um, Jesus fulfills things, we use that term a lot, you know, that terminology a lot. That that can be that word fulfill can mean a lot. Um, it's a lot broader word than simply pre- uh, prediction and fulfillment. It can mean uh, fulfilling of. Um, it could be like a typological prophecy where you have some things in the Old Testament that are like. Um, Take like the tabernacle or the temple. Well, those are like a uh, a structure that the Jewish people are familiar with, obviously. It's where they worship. Well, that can be an issue of fulfillment as well, where we're saying that Jesus fulfills those things, where he is the now the new temple, or he fulfills the, um, you know, the tabernacle, or he's fulfilling, um, you know, some of those pictures in the Old Testament, some of those things that Jewish people are familiar worshiping, like the Passover lamb. You know, we talk about how, 
Jesus as the Passover lamb. The Passover is something all Jews know about, but we're saying that points to what Jesus said. So I think we have to do, we have to go through those prophecies very carefully and make sure we're obviously studying them in the correct context, make sure we're studying them, um, obviously, uh, along with all the Jewish literature, making sure studying maybe some of the outside literature, like saying, maybe seeing what the Dead Sea Scrolls say as well when those came in, that provided a lot more knowledge about what the first, you know, first century Messianic expectations were. So there's just a lot of material now that we can look at. Um, so some of the right ways, I would say that, wouldn't you agree, though, um, I'll just say this to you, that prophecy is really important because you and I, when we're proclaiming Christianity is true, don't most people say, how do you know this is the one true God? Don't they always say that? Yeah. Yeah. They say it all the time. Like like atheists love to do it that when you're like, well, how do you know it's your God? It could be many gods, or it could be this God or that God. You know, I think it's kind of arrogant to say we have it down that there's one God. Well, prophecy in the Bible is really a, a strong verification test for us to show God's activity in the world, to show that he has interacted in humanity. And that is very important because we're trying to show people, look, here's God talking about something that's going to come to pass, right, in history, and then he brings it to pass. So it shows his activity that he's very active in history. So we don't want to take prophecy lightly in an apologetic sense. It does play a huge role um, you know, in, how, in, in forming our historical apologetic, I would say. It's mostly we're digging into historical apologetics. Um, but what goes to Messianic prophecy, as I said, I think it's really important that we – study each prophecy in the proper context um, and understand this is the way I define Messianic prophecy. I don't even really like, I usually say it's like more of a Messianic promise. It's like a promise of God that he's given, you know, for, in the Old Testament. And then this promise has many installments in, in the promise, you know, they're being shown. And then finally it culminates in the person of Christ. And so uh, let's take an example. Um, Let's take like Abraham, uh, the promise to Abraham in uh, Genesis 12 about how God promises him. Obviously, he's going to form, you know, this nation through Abraham. He says, through your seed, the nations will be blessed. You know, Abraham, a covenant starts. Well, that promise, I would say, is something that's blessed. The promise is a blessing to the nations, right? All the nations are going to be blessed through this covenant. Well, obviously, that's something that is uh, fulfilled gradually over time. And when we're studying Messianic prophecy, we always have to understand that the Messiah's work is directly tied with Israel. He's got to help Israel fulfill their calling. And their calling the world is to bless the nations. Their calling is to show the world who the one true God is. Well, if you start with that, like a missional understanding of the Bible, you start with some sort of missional hermeneutic, I would say, that's going to change. That's obviously going to play a big role in how you interpret Messianic prophecy. Because if you're um, seeing that God's plan is to reach the nations, like he wants Israel to be this light, and they're supposed to draw their nations to him, then the Messiah is going to be directly related to Israel, like in how he helps Israel fulfill that calling. And that's why we say when Jesus comes in the book of Matthew, um, you know, he tells the Jews and he tells them to go evangelize in Matthew 10, he says, only go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Well, that makes sense because he knows if he can get all hold of Israel and get them on track, they can fulfill their na- fulfill their calling to the world, right? But then by the end of Matthew, Matthew 28, after his resurrection, he says, now go to the nations, go preach the gospel to all the nations. And so I think that we got to have kind of like a um, – when you're studying Messianic prophecy, you've got to have kind of like a missional hermeneutic in the back of your mind. Like what 
is God's overall redemptive plan here. You know what I mean? Not just look at it as simply prediction fulfillment, prediction fulfillment. You know what I mean? You've got to kind of have like a hermeneutical sense there in the back of your mind about the mission of God. And that, that's helped me a lot over the years because uh, most Jewish people, as I'll you know, we'll chat as we go on here, they, they just have a different messianic expectation, right? And one of, our right. Main, one of our main messianic expectations is the Messiah has to help the non-nations come to know God. That's one of his main roles is to help Israel, but he's also got a calling to help Israel fulfill their calling. Israel's calling is to reach the nations. And so it makes perfect sense that Jesus, when he comes, he goes right to the Jews, you know, and he tells his disciples to go to the Jews. But then, of course, we see how it branches out and goes to the nations. And then Paul gets hold of that, and he goes to the Jew first, like you read in Acts, you know, all throughout the book of Acts. But then he goes to the Gentiles as well. So I just see this pattern of mission all throughout the Bible, and there's some really good literature on that that's come out. So um, I think that we're, as Christians, we're thinking like, the Messiah is supposed to, has a calling to Israel and the nations. And I think with Jewish people, a lot of times, it's strictly Israel they're looking at. It's not because of, you know, they're ignorant. It's just because they just, it's just a different starting point. I think a lot of it has to do with, um, you know, uh, our, our just our view of mission in the Bible. You know, what is God's role for the nations in the world? So that's that. There's a lot. I could go on and on, but, you know. There's a lot to do with Messianic prophecy. but um, So I would just say the first step is definitely study in their own context and come with that missional hermeneutic and make sure you're not looking at everything as just predictive fulfillment. You know, look at the typological prophecies. You know, ask yourself, is this really – and it could be a case – I'm sorry, one last thing. It could be a case of um, where some of those prophecies obviously had a short-term uh, fulfillment and then there may be a longer fulfillment in the future. Um, you know, there's some prophecies, obviously, that haven't come completely to pass yet. Uh, that's very clear. You know, if you read throughout the Old Testament, it kind of looks like, yeah, Jesus, you know, he is the Davidic king and he is uh, a ruler over the nations. But in a sense, he's not really ruling physically on earth yet, right? He's not here as, as the king in Jerusalem or anything. So, you know, we know there's things that haven't been completed yet. And the main reason the Jews in the first century rejected him was mostly because they thought he was going to do it all at once. He thought they thought they were going to get the whole package deal, you know, all at one time. And so we just um, kind of have to break that up a little bit on God's well, timetable. Yeah, that, that, that I guess we kind of go into the next question about Jesus. Uh, many Jews claim that he's a, he's a false prophet. And, uh, in fact, we use Deuteronomy 18 all the time when we're talking with, uh, with Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, talk to us about that for a minute. Why is it that they're... They, they, right. They well, that's a yeah, that's a real pivotal prophecy. The um, the one in Deuteronomy 18 where Moses promises a prophet will come like him, and I think the key is that when we read that, it's very clear that Moses said, "Whoever this person that's coming, he's going to be like me." That's the whole key of that prophecy. He's going to be like Moses. So he has to be doing the same things as Moses. He has to be able to be a deliverer. Um, in some way, like Moses brought you know the Jewish people out of Egypt, we we think Jesus obviously did that, um, delivering us out of the bondage of sin. He has to be able to be an intercessor, stand between God and the people, like Moses did. We know Jesus does that now. We believe He's interceding for us. Um, the other requirement, the one of the big requirements, is He has to be able to do signs, like Moses did, you know, to confirm He's a true prophet. And we know that Jesus did tons of those all throughout the book of John. We read about the signs he does to confirm his messiahship or Matthew, some of those other passages. 
um, and that's very important. And he has to speak. Um, he has to speak in a way, obviously, that shows that he's being directed by God. Now, the thing is that people jump on a lot of times Jewish people too, because I find them using a lot of the same arguments that atheists use and Muslims use, or uh, whoever else. You know, it seems like they've got the same arguments about this false prophet thing, and a lot of it has to do with Jesus's uh, discussion when he was about to, um, before he's crucified, he talked about his return. And he said in like Matthew twenty four thirty four, he says, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away until all these things take place. And then he says in Matthew sixteen twenty eight, same book, he says, I say to you, there's some of you standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Well, that ver- I would say the one in Matthew 24, he talks about this generation. A lot of people like to jump on that one, and, and Jews as well. They say, well, he he spoke presumptuously. He's a false prophet. Look. This generation meant those people there, so that must mean he was um, speaking to those people there, would see all those things he's talking about in Matthew 24, So they, and it didn't come to pass. And so they think that Jesus obviously spoke presumptuously as a false prophet, and that settles it. It's all said and done, right? Well, that's obviously a little too simplistic. Um, you know, there's, uh, there's a lot, of, lot to unpack there in Matthew uh, chapter 24, because – Remember, Jesus was speaking to his own generation, right? He would see the destruction of the temple in the final generation before his second coming. But he's saying there would be people alive listening to him who would see the destruction of the temple, which is 40 years later, but not the second coming. That could be one possibility. Or, you know, the word generation can also mean race. Um, You know, that's the way it's translated as well. So he could be saying to disciples, despite all these events that are coming um, to the Jewish people, um, following destruction of the temple and dispersion among the Gentiles, that the people of Israel live on, that means there would be like an identifiable group of Jewish people, right, until his second coming. So he even says, like in Matthew twenty three thirty nine, he says, you know, I say to you, you will not see me till blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Um, so generation, it could be an issue of translating that word race there. That's a possibility. Now, also has a lot to do with your eschatology. I mean, if you want to be a preterist or a partial preterist, you know, there's they have different views on that, what Jesus is talking about there, because they think a lot of those things have come to pass already, you know, in the first century, right? right. 70 AD. Now, if you're somewhat dispensational, you know, there, there's all kinds of flavors of dispensational. There's progressive dispensationalism. There's classical. I just saw Daryl Bach from Dallas Seminary like a month ago, and he's he would be called a progressive dispensationalist, meaning he's no more along the lines of a classical, that they have some decent answers, you know, to somehow some of that stuff is still futuristic, you know, that they haven't come to pass. Um, Now, the Matthew 16, 28 passage where Jesus says that there'll be some of his disciples there who will not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom, um, I think one way to look at that, a a, a very valid point, is that, you know, in the original Bible, you know, there were no chapter divisions, right, in Matthew. Like, you would have gone right from Matthew 16 to 17. And so it could be just that Jesus is speaking about the transfiguration because, you know, they saw him coming and, you know, they had that experience on the mountain. I mean, there would it it wouldn't be out of the ordinary for them to read that. You know, right from Matthew 16 to 17, no chapter division, just go right over and see, here he is on the mountain, you know, the transfiguration. And, you know, he, they see him coming in that power a few days later. So that's a possibility there as well. Um, but Jesus is a prophet. Remember, he did predict a lot of things that did come to pass. He talked about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. That obviously came to pass. He talked about the birth of the church. He talked about some judgment upon some cities that came to pass. He 
predicted his own death and resurrection. Now, we, of course, have to give an apologetic for the resurrection, but the point is he did predict his own uh, crucifixion and his resurrection. Um, so I think that – I think a lot of Jewish people and atheists in general, you know, we're, we're placing a lot on that. One thing on that generation issue, you know, is the big one, that that just settles it, you know, that Jesus is a false prophet because, you know, he thought these things were going to come to pass – at that time period, and it's just – I'm afraid it's just not that simple. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And, uh, right. you know, it's and they're just not. putting all the eggs in one basket and thinking it's all settled. And, um, you know, uh, it's just – there's so many different ways you could look at that. Yeah. And Thomas, let's face it. Thomas, I mean, I, Jesus – you know, they did think that Jesus was probably coming back in that time period. I mean, you know, they were very eschatological. I mean, they didn't – he didn't really say what it, the time period was, you know, when he left. He said, you know, it's not for you to know the times or the hours and, you know, when he resurrected and we ascended to the Father. And so I would not be surprised they did expect him to come back in their generation, you know, in their time period because, um, yeah. you know, he didn't give them a time time scale. Uh, but right. Thomas, uh, Thomas, I'm just going to interject real quick. Thomas Ice actually wrote a whole article on, on this about the, the this generation will not pass. And, right. Uh, I thought he, he did very good. I'm not, you know, I'm not a dispensational. I'd be more of the historical uh, premillennial. Right, like George Ladd or whatever. Right. Yeah, yeah. Right, I, I, right. I, I, thought that, I just think that is just such a such a weak argument when you look at, you know, when you actually do the ex of Jesus, you know, on that. So. Right, right. Well, that's the thing. But, I mean, you know, Bart Ehrman wrote this book on Jesus. Uh, I think it's called Prophet for a New Millennium. I think that's the name of the title. Maybe off on one word or two, but basically it was either Jesus apocalyptic prophet or prophet for a new millennium. Something about Jesus, you know, being a prophet. That was the, that was basically the premise of his book, you know, and that was one of his main arguments in the whole book that Jesus failed because of this, you know, this generation passage. And um, and people just bought it hook, line, and sinker, you know. And it's like, I mean, it's like, oh my gosh, I mean, is that. Is that really the biggest defeater you have to the person of Jesus that that settles it that he's not he's not you know he's not the Lord and uh, but you know how it is with people I mean we it only takes one scholar to write one thing and people you know they run with yeah. it it's it's all over yeah but it's, it's so. like you say a lot of the other a lot of the uh, I'm thinking of guys like Gary Demar Hank Hanegraaff they <laughs> they jump on that and run with it too to try and and uh, demonstrate uh, this partial preterism or Right. Yeah. There, I mean, there's a lot. There are a lot of partial preterists, and I mean, I don't know. I'm kind of in between. I mean, I I I do like some aspects of historical premillennialism, like you do. Um, I would say everybody has. If you believe Israel has any future, then you're going to be some sort of. Then you're going to be same along the same lines of some sort of dispensational view. You know what I mean? Doesn't right. mean you have to be a classicalist, but I mean. I think everybody has a little bit of that if they have some view of Israel, the restoration of Israel or whatever. And then if you uh, – the partial preterist thing, you know, they've got their uh, answers to that as well. Um, I've done a lot of reading it over the years, and I just – I've come to the conclusion that, you know, you've – you're just going to have to look at it like, look. I mean, you know, there's the majors and the minors. I mean, you know, I, yeah. I think I think it is important. I mean, your eschatology does change a lot of things in how you do your mission work and how you view your ethics – I mean, your eschatology and your – Ecclesiology, you know, and stuff like that. Right. So it doesn't right. matter, but I just don't see any need to like break, you know, break, be, you know, stop being brothers and sisters in Christ over it if you don't agree on it necessarily. So, right. uh, and a lot of people do do that, unfortunately. Right. 
Amen. Yeah, so I'd say that's one of the biggest ones they use in Jesus being a false prophet. But um, I think that one thing that we've got to emphasize with Jewish, since this show is really about you know answering Jewish objections, the one thing I point out continuously is this issue of the miracles issue with Moses. Because if you're going to be like Moses, you have to do those signs. That's very important. And now here's what Jewish people say to that, because I've argued with them about it. They'll say, well, okay, he did those miracles, so did Elijah. Um, you know, he did some miracles too. We know the other prophets like Ezekiel and Jeremiah, they didn't do any of that stuff, but maybe Elijah did and they did some miracles. So, you know, my response is, my response is, but this prophet has to be like Moses in all the criteria. You know, he can't just, not just the miracles, it's everything like Moses, right? And he has to, and that's the way kind of Matthew portrays Jesus. The book of Matthew, Jesus is kind of like the new Moses and John too. There's some overlap there, right? John talks about a lot of the uh, Moses you know, the typology and a lot of the things Moses did that Jesus is doing. So you have to really give the, the full criteria there for a prophet like Moses. Um, and remember that he, um, you know, that uh, that when Jesus came and John, you know, they're looking for the prophet. Remember that they keep saying that, are you the prophet? So it's pretty clear they had that expectation that the Messiah would be some sort of prophet like Moses. You know, that was a messianic expectation at that time period. So I think that's that's an important one we want to point out. Uh, with Jews, um, but uh, anyway. Yeah, I think uh, I think that's absolutely absolutely essential because that's going to be that's kind of where always the the attack comes is the deity of Christ. Rather, you know, who you're no, no matter who you're dealing with, whether it's uh, again Mormons, Muslims, Jehovah's Witnesses, it's always going to always going to kind of end end back going to uh, to Christ, isn't it? And who who he claims to be. Right, right. Yeah, his deity and uh his identity. That's that's the whole dividing point, isn't it? <laughs> always, so uh absolutely. Yeah. Let's uh let's do this, Eric. Let's take a break for a few minutes. Um again we'll we'll open up the phone lines, uh seven six zero five four two three nine oh seven seven six zero five four two three nine oh seven and uh when we come back we will uh we'll continue trying to answer some of these Jewish objections to the faith. So uh, stay with us, and we will be right uh, right back. Hi, this is Ted Wright, Executive Director of CrossExamine.org, and I want to invite you to come out this summer, August the 8th to the 10th, to Charlotte, North Carolina, to our Cross-Examined Instructors Academy. This year is going to be fantastic. We're going to have Jay Warner Wallace, Greg Kokel, our own Dr. Frank Turek, and many others. If you want to learn more about this, you can go to www.crossexamine.org and click on CIA to learn more about it and also to apply. Over three chapters, the book of Genesis vividly describes a worldwide flood that began with all the fountains of the great deep bursting forth and the floodgates of heaven being opened. The reality of Noah's flood is the crux of the conflict between evolutionary and biblical worldviews. If this global deluge really happened, then the millions of years of Earth history and evolutionary progression supposedly seen in the fossil record are swept away. The flood accounts for the major geological features and the vast majority of the fossil record. Indeed, the fossils themselves are a mute testimony to the truth of the flood. We find billions of dead things buried in rock layers laid down by water all over the Earth. Just what you would expect from the biblical account. 
If Christians were to believe and effectively defend the biblical account of the flood, then the basis for the evolutionary worldview would largely collapse. Many people would be saved from such a great pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. To find out more from Creation Ministries International, visit our website, creation.com. Welcome to the One Minute Apologist. One minute apologist. If you had one minute Apologia. to be able to unpack for the audience, we interview the world's leading apologists to provide credible answers to curious questions. Dr. Brown, is Jesus Christ the Messiah of Isaiah 53? Oh, absolutely. Isaiah 53 is, is a key, perhaps the key, Messianic prophecy in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, if you try to interpret it with reference to Israel or the righteous remnant within Israel, it breaks down. But when you recognize that beginning in 52.13 through 53.12, it first speaks of the Messiah's great exaltation, but then it says that, that he'll suffer and be terribly disfigured. And as the text goes on, what we learn is that his own people, Israel, didn't recognize him. He was suffering for their sins, and yet they thought he was suffering for his own sins. And then they come to the revelation, it was our sins that he bore. It was our our guilt that he was carrying, and by his wounds were healed. So, so it paints the whole picture of the Messiah's exaltation, but only following his suffering, his rejection by his own people, and yet ultimately their eyes open to receive him as the Messiah of Israel, and thus the Savior of the world. MacArthur inviting you to join me for Portraits of Grace. Men, have you ever been at work and realized you forgot to shave? Well, that's a good illustration of what it means to hear God's Word and forget to respond. James said, if anyone is a hearer of the Word and not a doer, he's like a man who looked at his natural face in a mirror. This is not some casual glance either, but a careful, observant stare. Yet even a long, hard look is worthless if you walk away and forget what you saw. If you fail to respond because the image reflected in the mirror will soon fade when you don't make the corrections. Perhaps you've been putting off something that you know God's Word is instructing you to do. If so, don't delay. This is John MacArthur trusting that you'll look into the Word of God and become a true portrait of grace. Theology Matters with the Palouse 
and we have our guest Eric Chabot on, and we are tackling Jewish objections to Christianity, and uh, been been going through a lot of good material so far. So uh, the show is podcasted, and uh, I'm sure we'll get a lot of downloads on this show. So I would uh, definitely recommend you guys uh, download the show, share it, get the information out there. Um, because it's you know it's good information, and we want to be able to uh, to reach everybody. And uh, Eric, uh, are you there? Still here. All right. Let's uh, let's continue going down this list here. Um, and you, you actually hear this objection a lot about uh, uh, Jewish people saying you can't really find Jesus anywhere in the Old Testament. And then I've got I've got a follow up question. Uh, with that, so, yeah. Well, part, yeah. Part of the problem uh, with that issue is that we have a problem defining the word Messiah. <laughs> um, you know, we say it sounds like very simple, but let's face it. You, you know, if you talk to a Jewish person, they're, they're generally going to say, "No, Jesus is not the Messiah. He's not the Messiah for us." And I don't believe the Messiah has come yet. Right? That's the traditional objection. And then you start talking and maybe why he's not the Messiah or whatever, you know, and you say you're a Christian, like, well, I think he is the Messiah. Well, what does the word Messiah mean? It just means someone who's anointed to carry out a task from God, right? Um, you had prophets that were anointed to do things. You had priests that were anointed when they went into the tabernacle, the temple. You had um, kings that were anointed, like King David or other kings to do things for God. You even had um, Cyrus and Isaiah. Um, you know, you have he, he's anointed as well. So, you know, in a sense, it seems pretty general. You know, it's like, wow, I mean, you just get anointed by God. It must mean you're a Messiah. Well, that doesn't mean you're anointed to be the Messiah with the article, with the the before it, right? With the big the. Um, you know, someone that's actual the Messiah is what we're talk we're trying to get to. Who's the actual, the, who's the one that is the um, fulfilling the Messianic task? And the other issue is the reason it's hard to nail this down is because if you look at Jesus, or in the Old Testament, it doesn't really say certain passages. It doesn't say, like, the Messiah will do one, two, three, four, five, six in this passage, and it says he's going to do this, this, and this. And it doesn't say the Messiah, like, those two words are there every time, right? Usually what it does is it gives names for the Messiah. Um, like, let me give you an example. Like, let's take um, uh, Jeremiah uh, 23, where it talks about how uh, the Messiah, the, the word there is branches used for the Messiah, where um, Jesus is like a uh, the branch here. Let me, I got the passage here, so in a second I'll read it here. I'm pulling it up right here. Um, you know, they'll say that, um, well, anyway, I'm trying to pull Jeremiah 23 here. Just a second, I got to pull it up. But uh, we got plenty of time. Um, I'll just pull it up here. Jeremiah 23. Jeremiah 23, it says right here, it talks about the righteous branch. It says here, uh says, the days are coming, in verse 5, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. And in his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell in safety. And this is a name by which he be called the Lord our, our righteousness. Um, now, most Christians use that as a messianic text, or like a messianic prophecy. But once again, there's an, just one example where a name for the Messiah is used, which is Branch. It doesn't say the Messiah, obviously, right? It gives like a name. It says Branch. Now let's take another – I'll give you another couple examples here, here really quickly. Let's go with Daniel 7. 
uh, Daniel 7, verses 13 to 14. This is the one that talks about the Son of Man. And we all know that Son of Man was Jesus' favorite title in his entire ministry, right? He used it more than anything else. Um, but it says here in Daniel 7, 13 to 14, it says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a Son of Man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given glory and kingdom. All the peoples and nations of uh, men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So Son of Man is another name for the Messiah, and this is one of the main messianic understandings that Jews in the first century had uh, of what the, who the Messiah was. Son of Man's like one of the main themes that he's the Son of Man. Um, that's something that develops a lot from the period uh, even before Jesus and some of the intertestamental literature and then at the time of Jesus. So it doesn't say the word Messiah there, but it talks about another messianic name, the Son of Man. Now, let me take another one to tie in with uh, Daniel 7. That's a very similar theme. Similar theme. Let's let's look at Genesis uh, 49 verses 8 to 12. It says here, this is right before Judah is about to die, right? And he gives this prophecy to uh, his sons. He says, Judah. He says to Judah, he says, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp from the prey, my son. You've gone up. He couches. He lies down as a lion, as a lion who dares uh, rose him up. Rouse him up. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, Shiloh comes, and to him all the obedience of the peoples. Well, there's another messianic prophecy, but it doesn't really say the Messiah. It uses another messianic name, which is, um, you know, they got the Shiloh right there. That's another name uh, for the Messiah. So, you know, and it has the same theme as Daniel 7. It has this theme of where the, the nations will bow down to this figure, have a universal rule. He'll be, um, you know, from the tribe of Judah, very similar to the Son of Man theme in Daniel 7, where all the nations will um, worship that figure as well in uh, Daniel 7, very similar kind of lofty view there. So the problem we're right. having is a lot of Jewish people, we have to go over really these names, these different names for the Messiah, like, like I just said, Branch, Scepter, uh, you know, Sh Shiloh, or... Some of the other ones, even the uh, Son of God's another one, obviously, that we use a lot. Um, chosen One, Righteous One, there's just all kinds of names that developed for the Messiah. And that's why I think we have a hard time sometimes explaining these things to Jewish people um, if we don't break those down. Because that's the way the Messiah was understood, through these names that were given to him. You know, not just, they, just, not just the Messiah or not the Messiah, kind of like, you know, A or B. Um, so I think that's very helpful if we kind of break those down and go over those with uh, with Jewish people, some of those names, <coughs> Messianic names. Absolutely. And then uh, the follow-up, I guess, would that be uh, is with the Trinity. Uh, yeah. Is Trinity. Do you see the Trinity in the Old Testament? That comes up by a lot of people, actually. Right. Well, I think that's the biggest challenge for us with uh, with Jews, Muslims, everybody <laughs> more or less um you know i i honestly think that i would say that um after looking at this i still look at it all the time that i don't think the trinity is i think it's there in the old testament i just don't think it's as as explicit as it is in the new testament i think it's a little more implicit in the old testament um it's not that it's not there you know the difference between implicit and explicit we're saying that as your listeners, as we're saying, as we come to the New Testament, it becomes much more clear. 
you know, of what we're talking about. It becomes much more evident that the Trinitarian nature of God is pretty much more clear in the New Testament. Just like the Incarnation, you know, it's much more clear in the New Testament. So I think what people are asking is, are there really clear passages in the Old Testament that are just as explicit? And my answer is, no, I don't think they're as explicit as in the New Testament. It doesn't mean there isn't anything, but it's just not as, as uh, straightforward. And that's because you and I, at least I hold to progressive revelation, that God reveals more of himself over history, and things become clearer and clearer, right? And then they culminate in the person of Jesus. Now, Jews will reject that. You know, they don't believe in progressive revelation. They think that it stops with the Torah or the Tanakh, the Old Testament, and there is no progressive revelation. But let's take let's 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 go into this for a minute. Now let me bring some up here. Now uh one thing we could go we could approach this many different ways. But um one thing uh, we know is that the Trinity is directly to tied to deity of Christ. You really can't separate both doctrines. So let's say um very clearly, let's say at the end of Moses' life, or we say we know at the end of Moses' life, let's say let's we know that when Moses is about to die towards the end of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 29, 30, that God tells him that he's going to circumcise uh, the hearts of his people. He says, I'm going to circumcise your hearts. He's basically telling Moses that something greater is coming. It's really the new covenant. Moses is, you know, he's giving Moses this, you know, this picture that the new covenant's coming. He's going to circumcise the Jewish people with a di- in a different way. Um, and then when we read Jeremiah in Ezekiel, uh, Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, we read about how the new covenant's coming as well, very explicitly there. Well, if God's going to do that, he's going to uh, place the spirit within mankind. He talks about Jeremiah 31 and then Ezekiel 36, especially Jewish people there, because he's talking about the house of tribe of um, – talks about the northern southern kingdoms, that uh, whoever's going to do that um, to Israel, meaning that he's going, they're going to pour out their spirit upon them and – place their, his spirit, God's spirit within people, um, that figure is obviously going to have to be someone beyond uh, a human agent, right? It can't just be a human Messiah who can do that. And that is why, obviously, we believe that when Jesus rose from the dead, that, uh, you know, he promised he would send the Holy Spirit. He promised it all throughout John. Um, really, he's the one who inaugurates the new covenant, right? He's the one that sends the spirit and pours out the spirit that, uh, that uh, God had promised uh, to Moses and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. So that's one way I always say of looking at supernatural Messiah. Um, I'll talk about the Trinitarian passages in a second, but the, I just want to hit that divine Messiah issue, is that, sure. uh, you know, when Genesis, the fall of man is the key to understanding the role of the Messiah. Christians think original sin is a big deal. Uh, we believe the Messiah has to be supernatural because there's no human Messiah that can reverse the condition of man. Uh, Jews do not start with that. They start with generally that man is man can sin, but it's not the issue if we have like a sin condition. So their view of original sin is a little different than ours. They don't start. They think that's more of a Christian invention that came much later. So right away we have a different starting point what the Messiah is going to do because they don't view, as I said, the original sin issue as a real problem. We believe your entire condition has to be. You, you need a new nature, really. And that's obviously done through the new birth, through the pouring out of the Spirit in your life, right? So that's that's a big starting point we have a problem with. Now, as far as the Trinity, um, Trinitarian passages, obviously the one passage that uh, is very clear that, you know, we argue generally about what Jewish people bought is the Genesis uh, passage about let us make um, man in our own image. Now, 
it's uh you know it's interesting because we uh you know as christians that um we agree you know we generally say that this is a good trinitarian passage to use a genesis one like who's the us right it looks like god is um using plural uh using plural pronouns there you know and so did you say that's about angels uh that it's actually about god creating with the angels with the heavenly host um, he is creating, but yet there – and there's more than one there, That, but it is referring to kind of like a heavenly host or the angels, the heavenly court. Um, now, that's a problem, obviously, because we know that God um, certainly doesn't – angels don't create, and we know that he doesn't uh, – angels don't need power to create. But uh, secondly, why does God need angels to create anyway? He doesn't need anyone to help him create. But uh, secondly, um, the other problem is that – or I should say – the thing is, what if you, um, you know, the other thing they have to say that man was created the image of God. He's not creating the image of angels, right? We know that, and so that's right. the problem with that, giving that kind of interpretation as well. Now, one passage that stands out to me, um, also in the Old Testament, a good Trinitarian passage is Isaiah forty-eight, verses twelve to sixteen, where it says, "Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, my uh, my called. I am He. I am the first. And the last, indeed, my hand was laid, the foundation of the earth, and my right hand had stretched out the heavens. When I called to them, they stand up together. All of you assembled yourselves in here. Who among them has declared these things? The Lord loves him. He shall do pleasure on Babylon. His arm shall be great against the Chaldeans. I even I have spoken, yes, I called him, I have brought him, and his way will prosper. Come near to me. Hear this, I have not spoken in secret from the beginning, from the time was, I was there. And now the Lord God and his Spirit have sent me. Jews generally say the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament is a force. They look at the Holy Spirit. Okay. He's he's not – they don't view him as personal. They don't believe him as, yeah, having personality and intellect. Now, I would have to say that if we read the Old Testament, it's pretty clear that it's the opposite. Um, the Holy Spirit's not a force. He is a person, just like – he's obviously explicitly in the New Testament, definitely has personality. We know that for sure. And he is um, not just a force as well. But they try to say the Holy Spirit is not um, – you know, like a person in the Old Testament, but that I think that's mistaken. Because if you look at this uh, chapter, this uh, verse I just read from Isaiah 48, you know, the speaker refers to himself as the one who's responsible for the creation of the heavens and the earth, but then it's clear he can't be speaking of anyone other than God, because then in verse 16, the speaker refers to himself using the pronouns I and me, right? And then he distinguishes himself from the other two personalities, right? So here we have, he's distinguishing himself from the Lord, and then from the Spirit of God. So you have like a distinction there, and that's, you know, that's, that's very interesting. Um, and the second – and uh, I'm sorry, yeah, so that's a very good – I think that's a f- fairly decent Trinitarian passage you could talk about. Um, now take like Psalm 45, verses 6 to 7. It says there, your throne, O God, is forever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with oil and gladness more – than your command commandments. Now, um, it looks kind of you know it looks there like you've got two personalities in the same verse. Um, you know it looks like you have the first Elohim being addressed, and the second Elohim is the God of the first Elohim. Elohim, you know, is the name for for God, and so that's an interesting passage to look at as well. And then of course um, the one that the Christians use a lot is Psalm 110, the one that the New Testament authors use about. Um, the Lord said to my Lord, you know, sit at my right hand, you know, uh, making a footstool for your feet. That's another – I'm paraphrasing a little bit. But that's one that looks like there's two figures speaking to each other there as well, not two gods, 
but um, a distinction there, obviously. So there's a, right. you know, it just the point is that um, I think what we're ha- problem we're having with Jews and Muslims too, especially Jews, is they think that worshiping Jesus is idolatry. They think that it's um, a form of idolatry, and they generally think that monotheism in Judaism says that obviously you can't worship anyone other than God. So here you are making this man into being a god, and we're not saying that we're um, it, we're saying it's not a form of idolatry because we believe that um, that God did uh, reveal Himself in ways in the Old Testament so people could He didn't you know reveal Himself directly because He says no one can see Me and live right. But when Moses saw him, Moses saw like a form of him in some places. You know, he saw the backside of him. But we do know there's ways that God would manifest himself to people in the Old Testament. They were, um, you know, there's certain, there's like this, right. those angelic appearances. Now, I don't think, I don't know, I'm not going to be dropped at certain those are Christophanies, where people say that's a pre-incarnate Christ. I think there's some debate about that. But the point is that God would reveal himself to people in ways that, you know, he t- he would he would provide a medium, you know, a revelatory medium that he would show himself to people. And another prime way is what's called the the, um, the Shekinah, you know, the glory of God. That's the Hebrew word for glory, and that's how he showed up in the temple, in the tabernacle. You know, this is the Shekinah, the glory of God, and that is exactly how John chapter one sees that. When John writes the book of John, he's saying that Jesus really. Is it's the same concept where God pitched his tent among the Jewish people at the tabernacle and the temple, and he showed up the glory of God. That's what he's saying who Jesus is. God pitched his tent in humanity, and Jesus really is the walking glory of God. He is the uh, the Shekinah, the glory of God. So the one thing that um, the one thing the Jews don't understand, I say by talking to them, is they tend to think if they think we're committing idolatry, I always say, do you think the New Testament are idolaters? And they're like, well. Uh, yeah, I'm like, well, that's not what the New – there's no basis anywhere the New Testament is committing any kind of idolatry, New Testament authors, anywhere. You know, they think – at least they don't think they're, you know, committing any form of idolatry by claiming deity to Jesus. Um, you know, there's no basis for that anywhere uh, right. in the New Testament, um, which may lead into our next question, but go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> go ahead. Real, real quick, I'm just I'm curious. Um, what do they do? What, what do the uh, the Jews do with like Psalm 23, which seems to be a pretty pretty powerful uh, prophecy? I think Psalm 23, or is it Psalm 22? I'm sorry. Psalm 22, uh, the one about yeah, the, supposedly the crucifixion. Um, yeah, 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 the crucifixion it's, passage about yeah. Um, they think that. Uh, Generally, they think it's been mistranslated, <laughs> to be honest, um, and they don't think it's about Jesus. So, But the good news is that we have an answer for that, um, and Brown points that out in chapters, uh, his Answering Jewish Rejections, Volume 3. The Dead Sea Scroll literature has a, has a much older translation of Psalm 23, from what I remember off the top of my head, that does favor a messianic interpretation that it is about Jesus um, but I think overall the reaction is that they think it's some sort of um, mistranslation, you know, that it doesn't really speak about uh, Jesus or anything. But it, it, there is an answer for that, and I, I'm going to have to punt to that to Brown's Volume Three as a longer, more extensive answer on that that one um, for the show, unfortunately, 
because I can't pull that all out. Pull that all out within ten minutes or anything. Yeah. yeah <laughs> but it does favor it does favor messianic interpretation if you read some of the Dead Sea Scroll literature, and I think it is there that that literature came out really helped our case for what what the New Testament authors were saying. Um, but go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh no, that's that's fine. That's good. Uh, I guess let's let's get into the to the last question here as far as. Um, uh, how do the Jews view the New Testament, and what are the common objections there that they have? Yeah, I, I think a lot of Jewish people don't read the New Testament. Um, some of them have, but a lot of them, if they're not religious, they obviously haven't looked into it very deeply. The ones that that have, like the Jews for Judaism websites, the apologetic websites, they actually have a lot of the same objections atheists point to us. Um, you know, that... Um, they, you know, they'll say, well, the Gospels aren't trustworthy. You know, they're written way, way uh, long after the life of Christ. Uh, yeah. You know, you can't. They don't have a very positive view of Paul as well. I think Paul is kind of like a bit of a heretic that he, um, you know, he's the one that maybe started Christianity, but it's based on kind of like a Hellenistic model because Paul obviously did know a lot about Hellenistic culture, um, but he was also a, a Pharisee um, as well. But so they generally say that. Um, it's very very standard common objections like atheists use that, well, you really can't trust the New Testament, and then what do you have outside the New Testament? Do you have anything? Do you have Josephus? Well, we we know Josephus can't be trusted, right? We've settled that one, <laughs> and uh, which yeah. isn't true at all. Um, the Arabic version that came out on Josephus is is reliable, but um, you know they uh, they tend to generally ask for sources outside the New Testament. Now, here's the thing. When they try to defend, when Jews try to defend the giving of the Torah to Moses as a case of eyewitness testimony, they'll say, well, you know, when Moses got the Torah, God gave that to him in front of all, all the Jewish people were there, right? They all witnessed it. They all saw it. So they all, you know, were there for that event. Well, they try to use that as some sort of historical apologetic. And I'm like, I, I mean, my response is generally, well, listen. Uh, I wasn't there for that event. You weren't either, and you and I wasn't there for the events of the New Testament. So we both have to trust eyewitness testimony, right? So it's really the same. You're in the same boat as I'm in. And then secondly, it doesn't make any, so it doesn't make any difference just to say there's a bunch of witnesses who saw it there, who were there for the event, because I'm going to say the same thing that happened with Jesus. That I'm trusting the witnesses because that's what we got. We have their testimony. They're telling the truth, right? Now we can go over tests to show why they're telling the truth. But you can't really say that, you know, you have this eyewitness testimony to giving the Torah, and then I don't have any for the New Testament. That's not going to work, <laughs> you know, that, you know, because we both have the same standard here. Um, and uh, like I said, I think they view Johnny New Testament as uh, a book that really um, – that Jesus kind of came along, and he changed the Torah. He changed – you know, the, the Torah is everything to Jews that are religious, and – I think they kind of think that Jesus came along and he did something with the Torah that he he uh, gave it a new meaning or did anything to it. If he did anything to it to change it in any way, that's that's just totally heresy. Um, and Paul did too. So you know they kind of have a negative view of the New Testament through those lens of uh, their relationship to the Torah. And then also they, um, like I said, they don't um, have a high view of. Um, they do think there's some sort of idolatry or Greek. I think it's a very Greek influence on the New Testament. They think that maybe because the Hellenization around the culture was going on, which there was, a lot of Hellenization the Jews are surrounded with at that time. They think maybe that influenced them to kind of make Jesus into some sort of deity. Um, so, but unfortunately, we have um, fortunately we've answered most of those objections because 
<clears throat> we know we read the New Testament that Paul affirms monotheism very clearly. Um, there's no breaking away from any kind of monotheism throughout the New Testament at all, um, even in the midst of like a Trinitarian understanding of Jesus, right? When Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 6 to 8, he says there's one Lord and one, there's many lords and many gods, but there's one Lord and one God, you know, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so he's He's not really ever saying, you know, that Jesus is just one of many gods now, and, you know, I'm some sort of, you know, pagan that borrowed this whole thing from, you know, a bunch of pagan influence or Greek influence. Uh, so they just don't seem to have a good understanding of that, um, that, that uh, the Jews at that time held a strict monotheism and still were able to, uh, you know, to, to look at Jesus in light of that he is deity. And um, so... I'd say overall it's just a matter of uh, giving them the answers and trying to go over in the New Testament. But, you know, how about this? When Jesus came, when the apostles preached, when they went in the synagogues, you read the book of Acts, you read their, their apologetics, all they did was appeal to the Old Testament, right? They didn't have a New Testament. So right. they just used the Old Testament to reach Jews. They said that, they said, you know, they opened the Bible and they used the Old Testament. That's what they kept using to show the Messiah had to suffer and rise again from the dead. So it's pretty interesting, you know, in that time period that that was pretty much the main way they would approach their, their fellow people. They'd use evidence-based apologetics. They, st they stuck with Messianic prophecy, right? So whereas the Greeks, you know, then like Acts 17, Paul has to start with nature, has to start with creation, you know, but he never starts with any kind of creation apologetics with Jews because they already believe in God, right? So, right. The, yeah, so he's just appealing mostly to Messianic prophecy. Um, so I'd say to understand the New Testament, you've got to have a pretty good understanding of the Old Testament. It seems like it's, it's you know, they're obviously, they're totally related to each other. <clears throat> so, um, no, they don't have a favorable with the New Testament, but we just have to kind of give them the information and see if they're interested. But my experience is they don't have a strong background in that area. Not all of them, I'm just saying a lot of them, from what, what my right. experience is. So. Let me, let me ask you this, we've got about... Seven, uh, 17, 18 minutes left. Oh, we do? Um, oh, we got plenty of time. <laughs> yeah, We're yeah, we got, we got till 8 o'clock. So let me, let me ask you this. The um, the problem of evil, of course, is one of the big um, objections that people give to Christianity, uh, but it is uh, also a problem that every worldview and every religion has to deal with. How, do, uh, how does Judaism deal with the problem of evil? Well, uh, I mean, do they believe that they believe that God has, uh, uh, you know, the, the omniscience, omnipotence, uh, omnibenevolence? I mean, right, the same class yeah. of attributes. Well, I tell you, with Jews, I tell you the difference between Jews and Christians. Christians are really big on systematic theology. Jews are not. Uh, they do not really write tons of systematic theology textbooks. Like you know, with Christianity, we almost have too many systematic theology <laughs> textbooks. I mean, not that we don't like them, but we're really into figuring all those things out um, very systematically. And a very, you know, big, we're big on metaphysics, big on learning uh, nature of God, his essence, all that stuff. But I think for Jews, um, when it comes to God's attributes, um, they do have Mamadides, 13, princ 13 uh, principles. Uh, Mamadides was a medieval philosopher, uh, Jewish, Jewish, uh, obviously, guy, very influential in Judaism, but he wrote these 13 principles, um, which gave a little indication of the nature of God, but not near as detailed as Christians do with our systematic theology. But 
the point is that uh, I think Jews, various Jews view theodicy or the problem of evil differently. The Holocaust was something that caused Jews to write and write and write and write books about. I mean, there's been just thousands of books written or hundreds of books written about the Holocaust, you know, trying to figure out why that happened. You know, how does this relate to our people? Why did this happen to us? Um, and some Jews became atheists out of the Holocaust. Some Jews still say there's no God, because obviously where the heck could God be to allow something like that, which is somewhat understandable. You know what I mean? If, you know, you look at the situation, you're there, that's pretty yeah. horrific. Um, so, and then there's some that have just tried to figure out all their lives why that would happen. Now, some of the rabbis, um, I'm saying some, not all, some of the rabbis, um, the real Orthodox rabbis, thought that uh, the Holocaust was like a judgment of God. Because they think that, they thought that maybe because um, some of the Jews are out of the land, you know, they're not really living in the land, they're not doing what God wanted them to do, because they're scattered throughout the world, they got themselves into this mess, you know, by being outside of where they're supposed to be. They didn't really keep the ways of God, and they, they assimilated into the nations. Um, so they think that's part of a judgment. Um, the Holocaust is maybe possibly a judgment. Now, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that's what some rabbis say, you know, some of the rabbis yeah. said. And then, uh, so I would say, uh, then there's another guy, remember the book called Why Good Things Happen to, uh, Why Bad Things Happen to Good People? That was yeah, uh, yeah. Rabbi Kushner's book. Um, yeah. That was kind of a way, he thought God was not in control. He just said, you know, God's obviously not in control. He doesn't. He doesn't really – he doesn't have any – yeah, he just said that – You know, I think maybe Geiser debated him, I think. He, but he I did, mean, he did. He did? Yeah. I've got, yeah. I've got that debate, yeah. And it's yeah. pretty much he, he ends up in open theism, really. Right. Um, I think that there's just a lot of different views on it. I, I think that um, – I think obviously they've had to wrestle with that issue, you know, with all their persecution, suffering. Um, now, interesting is that – what's interesting is that – some people, some Jews, view themselves as a suffering servant of Isaiah 53. They view Israel as a suffering servant. So they think their destiny really is to suffer. <laughs> so they think in a way, you know, as much as we see this, that prophecy about, you know, being about Jesus as clear as day, that they view themselves as a nation as a suffering servant, which, you know, is a very um, common view of Isaiah 53 today that uh, they're destined to, as a nation to suffer. That's just their their role in the world, is being right. God's representative, but also to suffer. Um, so I would say that you wouldn't, you're not going to find a lot of Jews, like, the problem of evil, they're not going to be sitting there probably going over, like, the logical problem of evil, like, you know, trying to work that out. For them, it's okay. more probably existential. It's more of the emotional problem of evil, like uh, with the Holocaust, just like it is with a lot of atheists or other people. You know, a lot of it's a, more of an emotional issue. Than a lot, a lot like the logical problem, um, trying to figure that out. So I think I think you probably have some open theism. I think you probably have some people that are just whatever. We dealt with it. We're going to move on. And then um, those that are atheists, you know, some Jews are just don't even believe in God. You know, they're just like there is no God. So he wasn't there in the Holocaust, so he's not here now. Um, I have run into Jews like that. A few, not a ton, but some. You know, they're out there. Um, so it varies from person to person, I think. But the Holocaust is the key to understanding the problem with yeah. evil with Jews. That's that's what you yeah. got to go do with them. Now Barry Leventhal at Southern wrote a paper on that. that. Yeah, yeah, he wrote a paper called Holocaust. That. Yeah, it's called Holocaust Apologetics, and basically he used kind of like the moral argument is like his main apologetic. He basically said, you know, look, you can't really posit that. 
there's right and wrong in the Holocaust if you don't have some sort of moral law. You know, then he kind of went to the moral law, law argument, stuff like that. So he said the Holocaust shouldn't lead someone to atheism. It should lead them to say there's really a moral law out there that has been violated, you know, by by what happened. And then he tries right. to obviously use that to point to God. So similar to the Lewis argument. Um, so that's just one way I'd say. There's many ways they view that. <clears throat> Okay. Let me ask you this. I'm curious about the uh, the afterlife, because uh, actually it was during that debate with Dr. Geisler and Rabbi Krishner, uh, especially when they started talking about uh, the existence of hell, that uh, Kushner was just extremely spongy <coughs> on that, uh, and he was saying he didn't really he didn't really think that there was a lot of um, scriptures that uh, that talked about the doctrine of hell. So. I'm curious, what what do the Jewish uh, people think of the afterlife? I mean, do they believe in heaven and hell? or? Yeah, um, overall I'd say, for the, the Jewish people that aren't religious, I'd say it's totally irrelevant to them. They don't really think about it very much, and they don't care about those categories. Um, I would say that even those that are even probably even more conservative or orthodox don't even sometimes care about hell. Um, they're not like... You know, there there aren't like a ton of texts. It's one of those things again. You know, in the Old Testament, you have, you know, you have some passages about the underworld. You know, and some things. You have some some small resurrection passages. I mean, a few resurrection texts. Um, but there isn't a ton there. You know, um, is more. It's, it becomes more explicit in the New Testament again. You know, once again, it becomes more explicit than new. But most Jews, I find, don't really believe in such a thing um, as hell. Uh, they don't believe, you know, people are naturally. They don't believe also in the issue of salvation the way we do. They don't believe they need to be saved from hell necessarily. They don't believe they're like wretched sinners that need redemption. Um, overall, they think that, yeah, I mean, they can break the commandments of the Torah, but the way they get atonement for that is when they go to Rosh Hashanah and uh, Yom Kippur service in the fall. It's a high holiday, the 10-day ten ten period where they confess their sins to God. Um, and then hopefully at the end of it, they have a tradition that's called the book. They say whether their name is written in the book of life. There's the book of life where God opens the book of life. Your name's written in there, or it's not written in there, similar to somewhat Revelation kind of talks about, but only they don't acknowledge that. Um, but, uh, you know, so they definitely think there's something there um, during that high holiday time if they're religious. But um, if you're not religious as a Jewish person, I would say the afterlife is just totally irrelevant, and this world is all there is. Um, so they just don't think about it. Um, you know, it's just not even an issue for them. They also believe what's called tikkun olam, which means repair of the world. And that means that they're they're here. Their prime purpose of this world, being in this world, is to make this world a better place, is to repair it. You know, what's wrong with it there? That's why you see a lot of Jewish people involved with philanthropy and other things. You know, they do – if you look at the nation of Israel, their stats compared to other countries, the things they contribute to the world, it's just insane. I mean, if you ever done some studying on that, the things that Israel does as a nation, um, you know, the, the, I mean, talk about in the area of medicine, uh, you know, medicine, entertainment, whatever it is, whatever industry, they've, they're just making, they've made astronomical contributions to the world. So, um, in a way, you know, despite the fact they've rejected their Messiah, I mean, for the most part, um, you know, they still, God is still using them to bless the world in a lot of ways. You know, they're still making... You know, very practical contributions to the world around us, and, and making stri you know striving education field as well. 
So, um, yeah, I'd say the afterlife isn't really a huge issue for them. Um, resurrection is a Jewish concept. I mean, it is in the Old Testament. Orthodox Jews do believe in the resurrection, do believe in the final resurrection of the uh, – but it's more of a corporate resurrection like of all the Jews of the nation of Israel. It's not just like necessarily just one or two individuals. It's really more of a corporate idea. So there is a concept of resurrection there um, in some Jewish places. Let me ask you this then. Do they um, – because I'm, I'm just thinking, you know, if they don't really think much about the afterlife or heaven and hell – uh, is, do they focus much on evangelism, some of these sites that you were talking about on the Internet? I mean, um, and what, what's the point, I guess, would be of evangelism if there's not, you know, um, I don't know, it just seems, you know, that they would think that because you you see the, uh, you know, their wars with the Muslims and stuff like that. Um, you would think they would, they would think there would be some type of punishment or something. Well, I tell you, as far as evangelism, I would say their first goal, like those sites that I pointed out, their first goal is to get Jewish people back to orthodoxy, to get the ones that are not practicing Judaism. They're being misled by Christian arguments, as they say, or Christian missionaries like me, <laughs> or uh, Messianic ministries, Michael Brown, you know, these, these kinds of ministries. They're there to basically get Jewish people out of that stuff, to get them back into orthodoxy and educate them, you know, as to why – Jesus is not the Messiah, and know what they believe, why they believe it, very similar apologetically. Um, as far as evangelizing, I mean, they, I wouldn't know, I would say when they dialogue with me, um, or another Christian, I mean, I don't think they're necessarily, some of them are not really interested in getting you to be Jewish, I would say. I mean, it's more or less just to kind of refute you, but um, there is a movement in some quarters of Judaism, very small quarters, to um bring i think gentiles out of christianity or other religions like mormonism whatever um to uh the one true god because they actually think you know that we're like the way you and i view mormonism and jehovah witnesses that's the way they view us right okay. they think they think we're like a cult right? right we're like a cult that uh you know the giving of the torah for the jewish people and the formation of judaism is the one true religion and you know these other these other religions have uh, kind of, you know, they're kind of like these cultic, you know, these cultic groups that basically didn't get on the one true path because, you know, God gave the Torah to the Jewish people. They were supposed to be a light to the nations. The rest of the nations were supposed to look to them and say, you have the one true God. I want to be like you, right? And so they were supposed to set the example. And so because they failed, um, you know, in a way, that's why all these other religions popped up and, you know, all these other groups popped up, like what we believe, what Mormons believe or Jehovah's Witnesses believe. And there are some Jews out there that do think that they are – they are, uh, they do have some obligation to bring Gentiles back um, to the fold, but they don't think you need to convert to Judaism. Um, they believe there's – they're what's called the uh, Noah, Noahide Laws. They believe if you – these laws of Noah – that they believe if you get on track, the Gentiles can follow these laws. They're listed online. I have to send you the link. But if you follow these laws of Gentiles, like there's like uh, more than seven or eight of them. It's like don't practice idolatry. You know, don't a lot of commandments. If you practice these things as Gentiles, you have a you'll be okay with God. Basically, you have a relationship with God. So that's kind of like their plan to get Gentiles like you and me, non-Jews, to believe. But we're not converting to Judaism. They're not trying to convert to Judaism. We just have to get to start following these these commandments. 
So they do have a little bit of evangelistic strategy in that area, but I wouldn't say it's, you know, they're quite as strict about it as we are with sharing the gospel. Um, sure. So yeah. So, but just that's the way I would say, as one Jewish person said to me, he said, Eric, just so you view Mormonism is the way I view you. <laughs> so, you know, I was like, well, that's a good way to put it, if that's a way to describe it. So anyway, you know, every religion has all their apologists. They have all their you know, they have all their apologetic arguments, and um, it, it's it's more I dialogue with other people in religions. I realize how much we all try to do kind of the same thing. We all think pretty much we have the right, we have the truth, and we have our apologetics, and we all try to share with others generally and um, try to keep those informed that are in the fold, try to keep them educated and equipped, right? And um, it's it's very similar, you know, so... <laughs> We're all right. we're all kind of doing the same thing. The good news is we all can't be right because they're all contradictory. Yeah. But uh, that's right. Yeah. So I'll tell you anyway. what, uh, Eric. Take uh, take two minutes. Wrap up for us. Kind of wrap us wrap wrap us up the show. Any points that uh, maybe you forgot to mention, or or uh, anything you you think we need to know, particularly about um, evangelizing Jewish people. Well, I just want to say to wrap up that if you are out on the Internet and you're out talking to Jewish people on the Internet or else or else maybe doing research, just always remember when you come across any objections Jewish people have to what we believe as Christians or Messianic Jewish people, because, um, you know, a lot of the arguments are against Messianic Jewish people. Those are Jews who believe in Jesus. Um, just remember to make sure that we need to make sure we're doing – all the research, it may take a lot of time, but it's worth it. Make sure we're getting the answers. Make sure we're not being lazy and uh, taking shortcuts and reading things online uh, without proper research. Um, you know, we have to make sure we're doing our homework. So I said, if there's anyone out there that are getting objections, you know, to Jesus from Jewish people, um, remember there are answers to those things. And, uh, you know, just make sure you're doing the homework. And then, when you're studying those prophecies, let's also remember to obviously take the time to study those in context, uh, make sure we understand what kind of prophecy we're talking about, whether it's a direct prophecy, whether it's uh, you know an issue of typology where you're reading something like about um, like the tabernacle or the temple, an institution or something, how that's fulfilled in Jesus, or a person, how like Jesus is a second Moses, he's a, like a type of Moses. Um, you know, we got to make sure what kind of prophecy we're studying, and then... Uh, when it comes to deity of Jesus, um, that's something else that you – in the Trinity, that's something else you have to definitely take the homework to study. Uh, that's a very, very extensive topic. Um, there are no easy answers, and as we always say, as Hey Canagraph says, you can fully uh, – you can apprehend the Trinity. You can't fully comprehend it. That's the way right. I like to put it. <laughs> so right. I hope that we're not trying to fully um, op- uh, comprehend the Trinity because if you do, you never will, and – Let's face it, when you're studying the nature of God, you need to have a little epistemic humility and realize we can't understand it 100%. And just because we don't understand it doesn't mean it's not true. But right. uh, And also realize the Trinity and the deity of Jesus, very important, is not something that was invented in the 4th century by the Christian church. It's not something that we just came up with in the 4th century way, 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 way later on. Um, it was something that was started very early on. Uh, only five to ten, fifteen years after the life of Jesus, you had a group of monotheistic Jews believing he was the Lord, believing he was, um, you know, the repre- he was 
the God of Israel in human flesh, worshiping him. And uh, that's something that started very early in uh, the history of our movement, of the early movement in the first century. So that's something you uh, definitely do not want to buy into. So right, that's one right. thing I hear. I hear that all the time, and I'm, you know, you hear that a lot. So I guess that's maybe about it. Yeah, yeah, about out of time. I appreciate you being on the show, and we will definitely have you back. And, Tell your uh, wife I said you. hi. Sorry, Mister. I will, man. I appreciate all Tell your Tell I said hi. Yeah, blessings, to you guys. Maybe I'll see you in Charlotte this fall at the conference. I hope so, man. We'd love to get together with you. Okay, thanks for having me on. You have an excellent weekend. You too, buddy. God bless. All right, blessings. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, folks, that was uh, Eric, and uh, uh, very good show, a lot of information. The podcast will be available. We will be back next week with another show. Uh, Make sure you let people know, and uh, we pray you have a good week. God bless. Yeah. Mike, check, Mike, check. One, two, one, two, one, two, for you. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Word up. It's that biblical, biblical theology, theology study of the person of God. Attributes. God's word is like a breeze in the tropics. And Jesus got the keys to the cockpit. He's the king, the priest, and the prophet. So please watch as we proceed with the topic. Uh, yeah. And that's biblical theology. That phrase alone, they give some people allergies. Uh, they say it's not practical enough. Uh-huh. Just give me Jesus, that will be enough. That seems plausible and logical. Nobody wants to be all cold and theological. But being a theologian is not optional. Because when you talk about Christ, you're saying something doctrinal. Either it accurately portrays his majesty, or it's a travesty, or worse, blasphemy. 